0: to talk to you about is apostasy then and now. A great deal of biblical literature has to do with what was happening inside the New Testament church prior to the death of all of the leadership, and particularly prior to the death of the apostle Paul. I want to begin by going to 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, quite a famous text. A lot of us are quite familiar with this. Where the Apostle Paul gave warning against a man of sin, some individual or other, and what we want to ask is, who was this man? Is there any way we can come to know? What was his race? What were his politics? Where was he? Was he like an armed aggressor, like an enemy nation that would pillage, plunder, raid another nation, and then take over by force? Or was he more like a fifth-column agent deeply inside of that church? And did he then gradually come to power? What, what is the Apostle Paul telling us here? Paul wrote, "...now we beseech you, brethren," verse 1 of chapter 2, "...by," and that means as to, or pertaining to, or concerning, "...the coming," and the Greek word is parousia, for those of you that are interested, which means the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, "...and by our gathering together unto him," that you don't become troubled, uneasy, unstable, unsettled in mind, neither by spirit, by some evil spirit, by some spiritual influence, nor by word, meaning rumor and just word of mouth, nor by letter as if it were from us, as from us, meaning the Apostle Paul was quite concerned that at this point in time people might actually have gone to the lengths of writing epistles, letters if you would, and putting Paul's name on it, and claiming they had come from the Apostle Paul, when in fact he knew nothing about it. That's something that I've had letters from people about, and have wondered whether some letters that they'd received had been written by the gentleman whose signature was at the bottom of the page. Of course, I really could not help them with that. I couldn't have any way of knowing. So he is really, uh, in, in a sense, he's saying, now don't be troubled, and then he is giving them a lot of very troubling information, a lot of things to be very troubled and very worried about. Don't be troubled by all these things. That the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now I've tried to make the point for many, many years that if you're not standing up, you're not falling away. People who are on their belly, or on their hands and knees, or lying on their back, or calling along the ground, doctrinally or spiritually, cannot fall away. You know the word falling away, or the expression falling away, and what it means? It means literally to become apostate. It means that once an individual has been repentant and converted and has had God's Holy Spirit and has been inside the true church, that they just retrogress. They just abandon their faith. They just give up. They just go back into the world. They just simply abandon the truth and the way of life that they have known, and they fall away from the truth that they once possessed. And they are no longer Christian, but they're something else entirely. The Apostle Paul predicted that was going to take place within God's true church. He is not predicting here an armed aggression from without. He is predicting a falling away or a departure from within. Now, he says that falling away has a catalyst. And he says, and that man, now he's called in verse 8, that wicked, capital letter W, or that wicked one, that evil one is the Greek term. That man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself. Some individual who is incredibly pompous, who is incredibly enamored with himself, and is given to self-exaltation and exaltation, almost like no one you'd ever heard of before. And he does so even to the point that people begin to look to him above all that is even called God or divine. So that looking to God and looking to Christ is no longer their primary motivation, but they are looking and, and adoring and worshiping at the feet of this one human individual who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he replaces venerable objects or worshipful objects or replaces God and Christ and becomes in place of God or in place of Christ. And because of that becomes literally an idol and is worshipped by these people so that he as God as if he were God sits in the temple of God showing himself or claiming to be that he is God now there are scriptures over in the 18th chapter of Revelation and of course Isaiah 47 and verse 8 about the great harlot that is going to ride and sit astride the beast and also as we see a little later on about the mystery of iniquity and we see other warnings about the power of miracles that will be in the hands of this individual, who is, I believe, the false prophet in this latter day, the individual who is identified as the false prophet of biblical prophecy, and we have seen traditionally, and we do still believe that, and I certainly believe it, that that may well mean the Pope at Rome, who is nothing more than the latter day descendant of Simon Magus and all of the individuals who entered into the early New Testament church. And began to convince those people back then that the power of the church should be concentrated in the hands of one man rather than the way Jesus Christ of Nazareth established his church, which was a church of checks and balances, a church of unanimity and agreement a church where very spirited discussions took place as in the case of Acts 15 and the conference on circumcision when one said after this manner and another said after that and finally it was all sorted out in harmony and unanimity although it certainly did not begin that way. Now, first of all, I want to ask an answer briefly although I've done so in the past I think both in writing and out of the pulpit. Does God work through only one man at a time down through history. If you would look in the Angus Bible Handbook at the genealogical, uh, not genealogical, but the chronological grouping of the prophecies of the Old Testament, you would discover something quite interesting. That God grouped a rather large number of prophets, including Amos and Daniel and others, around the impending captivity of the northern ten tribes at Samaria. And that every one of those prophets, were coincident. They were contemporaneous and they worked at the same time. They didn't work in the same place. They did not work in the same city. Some of them did not even know each other. They worked perhaps at, uh, you might say, different geographical locations, but, and some few of them may have been related and some few of them may have known each other, but by and large they did not. Now, if you look at the impending captivity to the southern tribes of Judah, you find a much larger grouping of the prophets, and indeed all the prophets, major and minor, all the prophets of the Old Testament, fall into one of those two groups. A large number of them around the impending captivity to Judah, one of whom was Ezekiel, who was taken captive in the earlier captivity and is now working and prophesying and writing his prophecies, which never even got to the people for whom they were intended, but he was a man of God. Now the point is rather obvious to the least scholarly mind, that here were many, many individuals. There was no organism, a spiritual organism, known as the church. When we look at the New Testament statement in 1 Corinthians 10 about the church in the wilderness, it is merely a metaphor, remember, that there was no church, per se, which was like a spiritual organism embodying all of the people of physical Israel, nor its leaders, whether they were princes or prophets. But there were men of God. And God worked through those men and there were several of them and they were in different areas and sometimes didn't even know one another and they were not arranged vertically because Jeremiah was not under Isaiah who was there, therefore over Ezekiel who was over Daniel who was over Joel who was over Obadiah. There was no vertical hierarchy or structure among these men of God. Now, they are a part of the foundation of the New Testament church of God and obviously God then does what? God always, and generally, you could say, works through more than one man at one time. Why? Because it is dangerous to do otherwise. It has always been so, and it will always be so. Moses and Aaron were a team. Elijah and Elisha were contemporaries. And Elisha followed along with Elijah long before Eli- Eli- Elijah, I should say, was taken to a place of safety and retired because he was just totally exhausted. When Jesus started the New Testament church, he began it with twelve equal apostles. When Judas Iscariot was disqualified and committed suicide. Christ insisted that he be replaced by a man named Matthias, and that was done by mutual selection, a voting system of some kind to at least assess qualifications, and then of course lot a lot fell upon him, which God directly interfered with and made his choice known. Christ then said to them that involving far reaching, binding decisions having to do with lifestyle or certain nuances or shadings of meaning of scripture or, or doctrine, they could not bind anything contrary to doctrine. Neither could they loose something that doctrine had bound. But there were dozens of things, hundreds of things, as there are today and as there yet will be, that were not specifically covered in some Old Testament doctrine or some portion of the Bible. So there were decisions that had to be made. And Christ said that the apostles were given the keys to the kingdom of God and that they were given the power to bind and to loose. And so he said wherever two or three, the minimum was two, and apparently preferably three, of you are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of you, you two or you three. Never did he say, I am with Peter only, and then through Peter I administer everything down to the rest of you. However, subtly, gradually, and actually if the truth were known, over centuries that battle Raged inside the Roman Catholic Church, and believe it or not, it was not until the time, clear down, comparatively modern times, I think, after the 1700s, it may have been early 1800s, about 1840 or so, I've forgotten the time of Pope Leo's edict. But it was somewhere fairly recently in our age, you might say, that the Roman Catholic Church finally succeeded in declaring that the Pope, when he spoke ex cathedra, or in situ, inside the Vatican, spoke infallibly as if it were God himself who did the speaking and that the man couldn't make a mistake. Of course, actually, under the force of arms, the Eastern Empire was completely split, and sometimes there were two popes and even more who were sitting there excommunicating one another. So the battle to determine whether or not one man was going to rule over the visible, organized church during those years took place really over many, many centuries and was not finally won until comparatively recent times. Now back to the text here in 2 Thessalonians 2. Don't you remember, verse 5, that when I was yet with you, these people up in Thessalonica, I told you these things? One point to remember in looking at verse 4. This being was going to sit in the temple of God showing that he is God. Now I know that some people have toyed with metaphor, saying that may mean that it will be a leader in the church because the church is the temple. Well, remember that when the Apostle Paul wrote these words, the temple in Jerusalem still stood. So the only thing the Apostle Paul with his mind and heart could have meant was that temple building in Jerusalem where there was a very large church under the leadership of James, the brother of Jesus Christ and of Jude and of John. James was the bishop of Jerusalem. And the Apostle Paul well knew that. So if he's saying sit in the temple of God, Paul, I'm making a point, is not dealing with some mystical metaphor, but the temple of God to him is like saying the courthouse over there. He's talking about the temple building in Jerusalem which still stood when he wrote these words in the early 50s. This is possibly one of the very earliest books to be written in the New Testament, together with Matthew, First and Second Thessalonians, probably about 50-51 A.D. And now you know what restrains or holds back or withholds that he, this individual, this man of sin, might be revealed when it is time or in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness or iniquity does already work only he who now lets. Now here is a one in my margin and it says hindereth. And that's an unfortunate word out of the old, old King James English. Let us, will let is ridiculous. We don't know what in the world that means in modern English, but it does mean from the Greek. He who restrains, he who is holding this back and preventing it, will continue to fight it and restrain it and try to hold it back from occurring as long as he is there until, and now we have a possible dual rendering, until he be taken out of the way translators seem to prefer that rendering which we read there seemingly applying the Apostle Paul's removal by death so that if the Apostle Paul is either thwarted in his attempts to keep the church from drifting into apostasy or he is dead and no longer able to do so, it means until he, Paul, is just gotten rid of or taken out of the way I don't think that is the accurate rendering, although I'm not dogmatic about it either way the diaglot, the expositor of the Greek New Testament, and some of the others, emphasize the Greek word ginomai in this phrase, G-I-N-O-M-A-I, which really means become to be or arise in the midst. And it seems to imply in the, the uh, diaglot, as I said, where you have the literal transliteration from Greek, that this should read, the mystery of iniquity does already work Only he who now restrains will continue to be until it arise in the midst, or until it become to be, until it emerge for what it is. So, in either event, he is still talking about this individual, this man of sin. And I want to make the point very, very strongly, once again, that this individual, whom the Apostle Paul does not name, and maybe didn't even know who he was. He just knew there was going to be such an individual, even if he didn't know which ones of the Ephesian elders would arise and lead men off after themselves. But Paul, he knew what was in the minds of a lot of these people. So even though when we see the scene in the 20th chapter of Acts of all these elders weeping on Paul's shoulders and hanging around his neck and saying, oh no, Brother Paul, we would never do this. Paul is saying, of your own selves, men shall arise to lead off men and so on, a following after themselves and so on. So Paul may not have really known who this wicked one was. He may have had some ideas, some suspicions, but we are not given a clue as to who he meant. So he says, Then shall that Wicked, capital W, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Comment. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52, the Apostle Paul very clearly, as he does in many places in his letters, proves to us that he fully expected Christ to return during his lifetime. Paul is writing right here, don't be soon upset in your mind as the day of Christ is right now, very, very quickly. Because first, this apostasy is going to occur, this man of sin is going to rise up, and Christ is going to consume him with his coming. So two things Paul expects to happen in his own lifetime. He expects himself to be somehow thwarted and taken out of the way or else maybe he expects to simply pass from the scene. I don't believe at this time he could have expected because this is long before Agabus made his prophecy and long before Paul was arrested and long before his testimony to Felix and his incarceration in Rome and appearance before Nero's court. So the Apostle Paul perhaps could not have foretold or foreseen his own death at this time. But we are dealing with an instant situation where Paul is writing from his own perspective, looking down the road of his own lifetime in the few decades that he had remaining to him. And that's what he's dealing with here. He expected Christ to come back and consume this living individual whom Paul may have known or thought he knew right then during his lifetime shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him who's coming, and again, the word parousia, that's an aside, but for students of the Bible that wonder about this, doctrine of the rapture it's important and the word brightness of his coming Christ's coming and also the word his coming meaning this one after Satan verse 9 is parousia in the Greek and they use that word to mean a secret coming which it doesn't mean even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and Satan does have great power I think power to perhaps even produce earthquakes tornadoes thunderstorms hurricanes uh, to actually produce fire and things like that obviously And we remember that the satanic power that was present at the time of the Exodus was sufficient to reproduce practically every one of the miracles on up to the lice, including the frogs and the boils and uh, the rivers turning to blood and everything, and that's fantastic, miraculous power. For those signs. But at a certain point in time, when the lice were so many hundreds of billions, I guess, just simply couldn't be reprodu- be reproduced by demonic power, then finally, Janice and Chambrys had to say to the Pharaoh, surely this is the finger of God. So Satan has a lot of power. And signs. And deceptive or lying wonders. Now, people are pretty much open for that type of thing today. I mean, I come across that all the time when I meet people and people come to me with all wide-eyed, with all kinds of conspiracy theories or biblical doctrines and theories and ideas about prophecy. They want to send me letters and charts and things that I talked about in the television program this morning. And they are ripe and ready to see something miraculous. Whenever I see some of these, what I consider to be ham actors... And I see them very, very briefly. And once, uh, within the last couple of weeks, my wife said, Oh, you got to watch this guy for just a minute. I said, Honey, I don't want to watch this guy. Not even for 30 seconds. Just watch him a little bit. So I find All right, I'll watch him a little bit. I mean, he got off about, what, 30 seconds worth. I said, Oh, I can't stand it. Please, let's turn it off. But that's about how much, you know, I, I do watch them. But I'm always dumbfounded at what little bit I have seen of these vast crowds. I think one of these guys was in the same big Hampton Arena in Hampton, Virginia where we had the Feast of Tabernacles in 1977 and I was over there with a, a huge crowd of people and here was this same great huge building with thousands of people out there with this guy around and, you know, uh, parading around like he, he knew this woman. And, you got a cancer, haven't you? And it's been hurting you right and your left side. And your name's Martha and your mother's paternal maiden name was, was Grant or something. I, That's right. How'd you guess? and he's standing around real saucy and smart alecky, and everybody's wow this guy is real. now that is a lying sign it's a lie they had way to find out all about that stuff and feed it to this guy way ahead of time and it's all lying and so on but there may be some demonic power present as well you don't want to ever say that can't be true but the audiences that are there people are gullible and they are susceptible to that type of thing and they are very much ready for it I think in our era in our time people are looking for that type of a sign and they are taken in very readily by them. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, and it's in the errors of the present progressive are perishing, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, I won't read all of the rest of this, but there is quite a fearsome warning by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica during his time of impending apostasy which was going to take over from within. Now let's go to the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, there are many, many triplets, and I won't go into all of those because uh, it would take a great deal of time and is a little redundant, but the book of Jude is the final one of the so-called general epistles. And many, many times he lists three things. I think there are seven groups of threes, like certain attitudes, certain aspects of these false prophets, and certain warnings and so on that Jude deals with. Jude is the brother of James who was also the brother of Jesus Christ so he is the physical child of Joseph and Mary and in that sense the half brother of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and so says so talking about the brother of James uh, in verse 1 and you can see that argued by a lot of the uh, scholars as to who Jude might have been some of them deny that most of them agree the preponderance is that he's the brother of James who was the bishop of Jerusalem who was the brother of Christ. He says in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, as we've said for the years, you know, if Jude is writing that they have drifted already so far away from the truth during his lifetime, then how much further did they have to drift away from it down through the centuries that transpired later on? Briefly, if you were to assess the amount of truth that is understood by the Church of God today, doctrinally, from the Bible, and go back and look how much truth the Lollards had, or the Bogomils, or the Valdensians, or the Petrobrusians, or the Henricians, or the Arnoldists, or those who came to this country uh, in the American Revolutionary period, or even during the great disappointment of the Sabbatarian movement and the Seventh-day Advent movement under William Miller, and some of the roots of the Seventh-day Church of God up in Stanbury, and later now in Denver, and my father's association with them in 1929 through 31 when he was ordained by the Oregon Association or the Oregon group of the Church of God's Seventh Day, you would find that even among those people there were many gaps in their knowledge of the Bible. They do not agree, they do not admit the identity of Israel. Therefore, they do not understand the entire scenario of biblical prophecy. Many of those groups tend to believe that we are Gomer instead of Ephraim and Manasseh. They do not admit to the observance of the annual holy days. So therefore, the entire spectrum of the plan of God, of how we are actually to become a member of the family of God, is denied those people. They don't believe that. They don't preach that. They don't know it. They don't understand it. Yet they have the weekly Sabbath, tithing, the name of the true church, and certainly... All of the qualities of Christian living, of being meek and good and decent and honest and frugal and gentle folk, uh, they are as Christian people as you'll run across. In most cases, they're all, you know, there's a little bad in the best of us and maybe a little bit of good in the worst of us, and I make that statement with that knowledge. But nevertheless, uh, you cannot say that those people of the church of God's seventh day are unchristian people. But from the standpoint of knowledge, a tremendous amount of knowledge has been restored. Well, then that means that down the way somewhere, that knowledge was lost. It was gradually submerged under an avalanche of pagan propaganda and subversion. And you know, that type of thing takes place very subtly and very gradually over a generation or two or three, over many, many decades, sometimes a century. Then as we view it from our perspective today, looking back at history, and we're looking at just a few years toward the close of the first century, we look at the writings of Polycarp, and then we compare them with people like Arnold... Or Justin Martyr, or Eusebius, or Clement of Alexandria, with whom even many modern prophet, uh, scholars take great exception, and where the Catholic Church labels these people as the so-called ante—not anti, but ante, meaning before—Nicene Fathers of the Church, meaning prior to the Nicene Council. And I have their full set of all of their writings, and some of them are so laborious and unbelievably far afield that you can all you, know, you can't believe your eyes. at the the wanderings and the the mental machinations and the ridiculous writings of some of these men who lived very shortly after the death of the Apostle John. I mean, the literature would would fill several of these books called the Bible that these men generated. And a lot of it is just so much fluff and, and makes no sense at all. But it was the doctrine, it was the teaching, it was the belief of the church in the first, second, and third centuries as they drifted down toward, eventually, Roman Catholicism. Now, a word in passing. A lot of times we tend to think of the church in the first century as a little group of about 35 over here somewhere in a synagogue and a little group of 25 or 30 over there and a group of little refugees huddled somewhere else. When in fact, there was probably a congregation of 4 to 600 in Corinth, a congregation of several thousand in Jerusalem, a congregation of many hundreds in Antioch and Pisidia, a congregation of many hundreds, maybe several hundreds up to a thousand or more, in Alexandria, Egypt. They were scattered all over that known world. They were in Rome, Corinth, in every one of the seven cities listed in Revelation. And you can read all the letters to the churches, and each one was a church including those that are not named, like Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and Antioch in Syria. And when you look at all of this, plus the churches that existed in the British Isles, in South Central Europe, in other provinces and cities in Rome, down in Carthage, all over Turkey, you are looking at a rather widely dispersed church organization, including a large church in Babylon under the Apostle Peter, and perhaps a membership of somewhere between 50 to 100,000 people by the close of the first century, and maybe much larger than that. We don't have any documents to tell us. But you're not dealing with a little scattered group of only two or 3,000 not with a church which baptized 3,000 people on the first day in Jerusalem, and every one of them went right back to all the areas of the Greek-speaking world from which they came and became cadres of ever-expanding evangelism and growth of the early New Testament church. It became a very large power, and so big eventually, that it came to the attention of imperial Rome, and they began to believe that they had to reckon with the growing might and the power and the influence of the Christian church during that era. So... My point was that what gradually became apostate was not a group of little fragmented refugees who were kicked out of the church by diatrophies. What became apostate was that large, visible church which was taken over from within. And that is the history of our Bible. If you read briefly... And I want to just come to this in the book of Jude, what Jude had to say about it during his time. His entire letter, a brief one, but very, very poignant, is taken up with a strident warning about this apostasy. Verse 4 There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained this condemnation, ungodly men. Now these are men that don't have a conscience. These are not men with goodness and meekness and faith and gentleness, these are cynics. These are men who have nothing but just callous disregard for human feelings. These are politicians. They are ungodly men. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, which means complete license or permission to do and get away with anything you want to, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And there were 14,700 of them destroyed back in number 16. You read of that. And the angels which kept not their first estate, now referring to demonic spirits under Satan the devil, referred to in Revelation 12 and verse 6 and elsewhere, he has but left their own habitation. He is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of that great day. And those that are demons, that people inhabit rather, not people, this earth today. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, they're not still burning, just a point to make in passing, but it was eternal fire because it was like a nuclear-type fire from Almighty God that destroyed those two cities, and they're not still burning. But their relics are covered up by the southern flow of the uh, Dead Sea. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh despise dominion and speak evil of dignities, But look at the rather uh, ironic twist we come to here in just a moment. They're not against authority. It's only a question as to whose, as we will see. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, and we have no other record of this except in some of the extra-biblical records to which Jude appeals, including the book of Enoch. Uh, which apparently was quite well-known by the 2nd and 3rd century. might have been written in Alexandria and uh, more about that if you want to look in Angus' Bible handbook and other sources. But the book of Enoch was well-known. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally is brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves." Woe unto them. What is their motive? They have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Cori or Korah. And if you study what Korah's attitude was, it was jealousy of leadership, covetousness of position. It was a cynical disregard for Moses' position and a desire to exalt themselves in his stead and place themselves in a position of power. These are blemishes, spots in your love feasts or your feasts of charity when they feast with you feeding themselves without fear so Jude admitted they were already inside the church they were attending at the festival of tabernacles they were there at the Passover they were there washing one another's feet they were right inside the church during that day clouds they are without water carried about of winds trees whose fruit withereth without fruit twice dead plucked up by the roots this is really a horrible condemnation he's just saying the most utterly worthless human beings you ever heard of here raging waves of the sea, forming out their own shame, wandering stars, now getting back to a kind of a type of these satanic spirits, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, therefore proving that way back during the day of the flood and even prior to that time, the fact of the second coming of Jesus Christ was known and prophesied by men of God in that era to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him these are murmurers complainers walking after their own physical appetites their own sensual appetites or lusts and their mouth speaking great swelling words now a very awkward phrase having men's persons in admiration because of advantage really means having men's persons in admiration in order to gain advantage, they are therefore lying, cynical sycophants. They're backslappers. They continually pass out all sorts of accolades and they are politicians. They politic their way into favor and they do so cynically. But, beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who'd walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be those who actually form, it should read here, cliques or groups who separate themselves, who are of party spirit, and who are carnal or physical, the word is sensual, having not the spirit, "...but you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life." And goes on to say, "...and if some have compassion, making a difference." People who had sinned, people who had gotten caught up in this type of thing. Others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, trying to keep them from drifting back into this apostasy, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Another metaphor. Now unto him it is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And I emphasize that word, keep you. Christ is able to keep you as he was able to keep them. And as he prayed to his Father that he would lose none of those whom he said, You have given me, I pray that I will lose none of them save the son of perdition. You have to have faith in Christ, not in yourself. That he is able to keep you from falling. You aren't able to do that for yourself. And to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Now, quickly, in the book of Revelation, second and third chapters. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, a very large church, of may be many hundred members, it is said right here, I know thy works, your labor, your patience, verse 2. And how you cannot bear them which are evil and have tried them and say they are apostles and are not. Now here was Simon Magus and his clique and his group getting in and beginning to actually masquerade as leaders of the church. And has found them liars, and the church was congratulated for having that kind of caution, for being able to carefully sort through what was said and what was done and the deeds that were performed, and to look at the example of the genuine apostles under Christ, and then to find that some of these men that were coming along during that era were actually liars and as born, and had patience for my name's sake. A little later on he said, in verse 6, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We have no real certain knowledge of them, but speculations that I have read tend to indicate they were the people that came up with a bizarre doctrine that we really reveal God's mercy by sinning. That the more we sin, the more He forgives, and therefore the more we sin, by contrast, the worse we are, the greater is God. And I don't know that that is true or not. We have no real historical factual data about the Nicolaitans, but their deeds were so abominable that Christ said, I hate their deeds, and at least you hate their deeds. But there they were, and they had power, and there was a certain amount of influence. And obviously they were influencing some of God's people, though the leadership in general rejected their teaching. All right, so much for that church. Here is Smyrna. And he says very quickly in verse 9, in the middle of it, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Here with the Babylonian mysteries getting started in that local church in the first century about 91 A.D. In the church in Pergamos, verse 12, is the church of Pergamos and begins there and says in verse 13, I know your works where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is, that you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And there's a great deal of history on that. Coney Bear and Housen, I think, a lot of other references about, uh, and cer- certain whole books have been written, of course, about the Revelation letters, and uh, you can refer to them for further information. But there was a very large uh, temple, I'm not sure if it was to Asclepios or Diana of the Ephesians, that was in that city, and that may refer to it. I have a few things against you. You have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication and that fornication was committed as if in temple, in, in the case of the temple prostitutes as it were a religious activity. And some of the people of God's church were actually being led into that. Now you look at the church at Thyatira and in verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you because you permit that woman Jezebel which calls herself a prophetess, a self-appointed woman it was not credentialed, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. We're looking at it as an historical document of what was taking place in the first century before 92 A.D. was out, during the lifetime of Jude, James, Peter, Paul. Paul may have been dead by now. John was alive. Peter may have been dead by now. But John is writing, and by this time, I mean it is so deeply entrenched that we see this same thing in every one of the local churches, the visible church of Jesus Christ at that time. I won't read all of the rest of that about her children, and of course the depths of Satan are mentioned in verse 24. And we know the historical aspect of that as well. When he come to the church at Sardis, he said you have a few names, verse 4, that have not defiled their garments. But it meant that the majority of them had. And he said, therefore, only a few of them were going to survive and be in God's kingdom. The angel of the church of Philadelphia largely is congratulatory, but it says, verse 9, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan that say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. The same party we dealt with in the church in Ephesus. The same group of people who were making the same claim. I will make them come and worship before your feet. A little later on of the church of the Laodiceans, they, of course, were lukewarm. And they didn't know that they spiritually were wretched, miserable, poor, and blind and naked. But physically, they had many, many wealthy, marvelous things. And so, of course, they were saying they were rich and increased with goods. There is, by the way, I think, a little bit of misunderstanding on that. I'm frankly more of the opinion that when they said, we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, they were really speaking spiritually more than physically. They were spiritually proud. There's not absolute evidence here that they were materially astoundingly wealthy. And it seems to be the force of the verse and the entire passage here is that they were spiritually puffed up, when in fact spiritually they were wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. So there you have a quick perusal of every one of the seven churches of Revelation, and we see that exactly what Jude said, and exactly what the Apostle Paul warned about, was coming to pass. We're familiar with Diotrephes in Third John 10. I want to conclude with that. Just to turn to that, we only have about three minutes, but let's turn to 3 John 10, just back before the book of Revelation here right quickly and refresh our memory on that one verse. In verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, receives us not. Remember what we read about people who have persons in admiration in order to gain advantage? Diotrephes was a politician. He loved the preeminence among them. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren and forbid them at wood and cast them out of the church. Now, what doesn't it say quickly as we complete today, as I run out of tape and out of time? What does not that say? That does not say one word about clean and unclean meats. It doesn't say one word about makeup or hemlines. lines. Not one word about the Sabbath or the holy days. Not one word about heaven, hell, judgment, millennium, uh, the, the second coming of Christ, the kingdom of God, the identity of Israel. It doesn't say one word about doctrine. Doctrine has nothing to do with Diotrephes' attitude. He is a sycophant. He is a worshiper of position and of power. He works his way in by admiring and by backslapping and by having people's persons in adulation. He desires the leadership. He desires the limelight. And he kicks people out of the church and he prates against the true ministers of Jesus Christ with vicious and malicious words. So there's diatrophy. Now, when the people were kicked out by Diotrephes, who were those people who were kicked out? They were true Christians, believers, absolute Christians, in whom was the Spirit of God. What became of them? We don't have the faintest idea, but I'll tell you what became of those who stayed in under the harsh teaching of Diotrephes. They became apostate. Don't believe for one minute that the prophecies of 2 Thessalonians 2, that day, of the fulfillment of all these prophecies and the great tribulation and the day of the Lord and the second coming of Christ shall not come except there be a falling away first. That falling away doesn't mean Baptists becoming Catholics or Catholics becoming Muslims. That means members of God's church on this earth falling away and just going back out into the world or wherever but just abandoning the truth of God. There will be apostasy now, as there was apostasy then.